want you to turn to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. We're going to look at that verse in a moment. And then if you will turn over to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And if you will just kind of mark that place, maybe you've got your tablet or your phone, you can bookmark it. If you're kind of like me, a little old-fashioned, maybe you've got a little bookmark you could put there or hold your finger there. And I want you to see these two um, scriptures side by side today, and hopefully they will encourage you. You know, some years ago, I, I read a book by Gary Chapman, and it spoke about the five love languages. Some of you probably read that book, or you've even been through the Bible study. Every time I, I do like marriage counseling or premarital counseling, I should say, I go through that book. I go through parts of it, and this is the season for weddings, right? I mean, I've had two the last couple weekends and different things going on, so it's been on my mind of the different ways in which we communicate or express love. And Chapman says there are like five different ways in which we show our love or maybe we receive love. And as I worked through it, I decided, okay, how do I do that? Like, how do I show love based upon Chapman's uh, message here? How do I show it, and how do I receive it? And, of course, all you got to do is basically talk to your spouse, and they'll tell you everything about you, right? They know you better than yourself. Well, I thought I had worked through it for myself, and then I talked to Leslie about this. I said, hey, what do you think, you know, the love language would be? And she said, oh, it is definitely words of affirmation. You've got to be told over and over and over and over how much you're loved, and you have got to be affirmed. I said, okay, that's awesome, and that's probably the reason I say uh, I love you so often. You know, it's kind of like, or encourage individuals, because I like to be encouraged. Now, I did find out her love language was not the same. That, that's rough. When God puts you together like this, and you speak different love languages. But I learned that Leslie's love language would, would be acts of service. So I would say to her something like, I love you, baby. And she would say, that's awesome. Go take out the garbage. <laughs> Go do something. Like service. I mean, you, you know, as we, were, we realized that sometimes we speak different love languages. We communicate differently. But I'm going to say to you, even though some of us, like myself, would resp respond to words of affirmation primarily, I would say all of us need some words of affirmation. I think all of us from time to time need some encouragement. All of us from time to time need people to speak into our lives. But I would even say this. More importantly, we need God to speak into our lives to encourage us. Don't you believe that? I just need God sometime to just remind me of the purpose and the plan that he has for me and to encourage me along in that plan. And I believe even Paul felt that. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. I, I, I believe this is a moment where God speaks into the ear of Paul just to encourage him, to help him to see that there is still a plan, there's still a purpose that he has for him, and that he wants to empower him to fulfill that plan. So let me give you a little context, and then we'll look at verse 11 together. 
Basically, Paul has left Ephesus, his long-term pastorate. He had been there three years. He had told them goodbye. And he had headed toward Jerusalem. And he knew in Jerusalem he was going to face some persecution. But it was reinforced by Agabus, the prophet. As Agabus, the prophet, had come to Caesarea to meet Paul, he took Paul's belt off. And he put it around Paul's hands. And he just reminded him that when you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound. You will find persecution. But Paul sets his face toward Jerusalem. And he goes knowing that God has called him to bear witness again there in Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem. The church gathers around him. It, it's a great reception. But after about a week or so, there Paul is in the temple complex. And the Bible says that there are Jews from Asia that come down and they stir up the crowd against Paul. And before you know it, they have taken Paul and they have begun to beat him. Thankfully, the Roman soldiers intervened. They came down from the Atonia Fortress and they took Paul into custody. But not before this. Get this. Not before Paul was able to share the gospel of Christ even with that mob that had just beaten him. He was taken into Roman custody. Yes, he was allowed to testify before the Sanhedrin, but then he was brought again into the imprisonment or the custody of the Romans. And here he is, sitting in that custody when God decides he needs a word of encouragement. Verse 11 of chapter 23 of the book of Acts records for us this moment. It says, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So here's Paul in the custody of the Romans. He's been rejected by his own countrymen. And there God is. I love it. God always seems to show up when we need him most. God's always there with us. We know that. But I'm talking about the manifest presence of God just comes into our lives when we need him most. The Bible says that that night the Lord stood by him. Now, I don't know exactly how Paul recognized that or realized it. I don't know if there was some type of manifestation itself where he knew that the Lord Jesus was right by him. But all he knew was God stood with him, that Jesus Christ was standing with him. It's almost the idea that, that he's like, come around Paul, and you can almost envision like him putting his arm around Paul. Or maybe he puts his hand on his shoulder, as he will later in the Revelation as he speaks to John. And it's almost like a comforting presence. The Lord stood by him. And what did he say? He said, be of good cheer. There are days when God has to whisper that in our ears. He has to say, hey, just be of good cheer. Just be encouraged. Be blessed. Be joyful. You know, it's very similar to that phrase that you'll find throughout Scripture. It's very similar to that phrase, do not fear, right? When I read this, be of good cheer, it, it conjured up the ideas of like God saying to people, do not fear. And God says that all throughout the scripture to people. He'll remind them that you don't have to be afraid, you can be of good cheer. Rick Warren, some years ago, said that that phrase, do not fear in particular, 
was found 365 times in the Scripture. And what Rick Warren said was that you have one do not fear in the Bible for every day of the year because we kind of need it, right? Well, actually, we went back and looked at it. There are more than 365 times that that phrase, do not fear, appears in the Scripture. Some would say it's almost double that amount. Isn't that pretty good? That means we got two do not fears for every day of the year, right? Because you and I need that constant encouragement. We need the idea of be of good cheer, especially when we can get down. I don't know about you, but I can get down every now and then. No, nobody in here. Oh, you all are up all the time, emotionally, spiritually high. There are times we can get down in life. God comes and he says, be of good cheer. And then he basically says, don't forget, I got a plan for you. What, did, what does he say? What does he say to Paul? He said, hey, just as you have been used in Jerusalem, just as you have been a witness, just as the gospel has gone forth in your life here, I'm going to use you in Rome itself, the epi epicenter of the empire, the center of the known world. He said, I am going to use you. When I come on Sunday morning and I look out and I see people that I get to preach to, I give God thanks, first of all, because I get this opportunity, but also I know what a great responsibility it is. Because I'm convinced that God has a plan for every individual that walks into this place that hears his word, that somehow finds himself or herself here in our congregation. I believe God has a plan for each and every individual. God knows you. He has a plan for you. And I know sometimes you can get discouraged. You can say, really, are you... You sure God has something for me? And I want to say to you again, no matter what state you find yourself, if you are down, if you are out right now, I want you to hear this, that God has a plan for you and he is going to work it to his completion. God has a plan. And I want to show you how that plan unravels how it is, I should say, how it is fulfilled in Paul's life as I summarize these next few chapters of Acts. But I also want to point out this other scripture that I told you to kind of hang on to for a moment because I want you to keep this scripture in mind as we go through this. Because Philippians 1.6, it will, it will be penned by Paul later on as he is in Rome as he is under house arrest, as he reflects back and as he challenges the people of Philippi, this is what he'll say to them. He'll say, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So I want you to keep that in mind as you think about Paul heading to Rome and the fulfillment of God's plan in his life, okay? that he believed because of what he had seen, because what he understood of God, that God would complete the task that he had for him. So, coming back, Paul, 
you're going to Rome. And listen, if God tells you you're going to Rome, you better get ready to go to Rome. If God says, I'm going to use you in Rome, that means he will do whatever it takes to get you to Rome to use you. Right? You can trust him. That's his promise. When he speaks into your life and he says, this is what I'm going to do with you, then you can count on God to fulfill that plan and purpose for your life. You can do that. Despite, despite the schemers who stand against you. If you read on after this, so God comes and he encourages Paul and says, I'm going to use you in Rome. Then what happens right after this? We're told of a great conspiracy to kill Paul, to destroy him. So right after God says, I want to encourage you, I've got a plan for you, all of a sudden, there's a conspiracy, there's a scheme that's hatched by 40 different individuals who take a vow. This is what they do. They take a vow and they say, we will not eat until we have the life of Paul. They talk to the religious leaders and they say, hey, all you got to do is have the Romans bring him down at this time and we will be there. We will assassinate Paul. So God just encourages you and then a, a murder conspiracy breaks out. That's the way things go, right? I mean, God, though, he is in control. And what happens is word gets to Paul's nephew, his sister's boy. And Paul's nephew comes to Paul and says, Hey, we have heard that there's this plot to kill you. Now, you and I probably would have gotten very down at that time. Hmm? To say the least. There are people in the church, you know they're people, and they're talking about you, preacher. Those white pants you wear. <laughs> they, they are concerned about the direction of this church. If you're going to wear white pants that often, you're going to look like some car salesman. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with a car salesman. <laughs> you're going to look like the milkman. You're going to look, I've heard it all recently. Now, I don't know how many people are actually talking. You know, when people come and they say, oh, there are a lot of people talking, it probably means them and somebody else. <laughs> but you can get down. You can get down pretty quickly. Even after God just encouraged you, even after you just had great times. Look, in the life of the church, often it's at, right after mountainous moments. Like when you've had the highest moments is when I can experience the greatest lows in my life. Because Satan will come. So God just stood by, get this, God just stood by Paul and said, I've got a plan for you, I've got to work. And then what happens? The next day, he gets word that somebody's trying to kill him. But our God had a plan that he would fulfill. Because we can be confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. There's not going to be a conspirator out there or a conspiracy that will take our life before the Lord Jesus uses us for his kingdom and his purpose. So God just happens 
to have the nephew in the right place to hear this assassination plot. And he comes to Paul. And Paul says, you go to the commander and you tell him what you have told me. And he goes to the commander and the, he tells the commander that they're going to try to kill Paul. And what does the commander do? The commander immediately gets him out of Jerusalem, moves him towards Caesarea with the Roman garrisons. And I love the way Chuck Swindoll explains verse 23 of this 23rd chapter. Because it says that as Paul goes, the commander appoints 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearsmen to go to Caesarea. So get that. 200 plus 200 plus 70 plus the two centurions. You got 472 bodyguards for Paul. Because our God is in the protection business. And God was not through with Paul, and God was not going to allow a bunch of schemers and conspirators to take his life prematurely. So God provided. God gave. I want to remind you that God's scheme is greater than any of Satan's schemes. That God is greater than any detractor. God is greater than any of these things that enemies that would stand against you. And he will fulfill his purpose for your life. As a matter of fact, he may even use those conspiracies. He may even use uh, the enemy's tactics to further the kingdom progress. Paul would say, he actually said earlier, to the Corinthians. He had said, a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. He said, in the midst of adversaries, he had experienced open doors. And even here, what God was doing was moving his plan forward. I'm going to think those conspirators must have gotten hungry, huh? They said they would not eat until they killed Paul. But God was greater than those conspirators. I say to you that you can trust him because if he says you're going to Rome, you're going to Rome despite the schemers that stand against you. If God says you're going to Rome, you're going to Rome despite the sovereigns who would stand before you. What do you mean by that? When I speak of the sovereigns, I'm speaking of those authorities because sovereign means the idea of authority. So those authorities that would stand before you, and if you read through the next few chapters, I encourage you to do that as you get home, not now. Right? See? I finally see all of your eyes at one time. <laughs> Despite the sovereigns that, who stand before you, if you read these next few chapters, you'll see that Paul will go back and forth in front of these authorities. He'll see a guy named Felix, the proconsul, the governor of the area. Felix, who was a slave but who had become a governor, who was greedy. As a matter of fact, Tacitus would say that he had the power of a king, but he had the mind of a slave. And he would, Paul would stand before Felix and he would reason with him the Bible says that he had talked to him about righteousness and conviction 
and the judgment that was to come. And eventually, Felix would have no more of it because he knew his immoral life, and he wasn't about it to accept Christ, repent of his sins. He actually sent, again, Paul away into the custody and to the imprisonment there in Caesarea. And he had said, maybe if there's a convenient time, I'll bring you back. But guess what? There was never another convenient time in Felix's life to hear the truth. Paul would stand before another governor, proconsul, called Festus. He would stand before Festus and even King Herod Agrippa II. He would stand before them. But you know what's awesome as you read through this? Because each time you think to yourself, what if? What if this authority would have found him guilty and just ended his life then? What if, what if each one of these individuals had decided that Paul was guilty of treason and had extinguished the plan that God had for him? Oh, I want to remind you that when God says you're going to Rome, you're going to Rome. And it doesn't matter how many sovereigns stand in front of you or before you. It doesn't matter how many authorities you have to try to answer to. Your God is going to demonstrate his sovereignty over all sovereigns. Your God is going to show that he can bring you before the officials and he can deliver you in the right and appropriate way. Because our God is in the business of fulfilling his plan for us. Oh, I believe, I believe as he stood there before Felix, I believe as he stood there before Festus, I believe as he stood there before Herod Agrippa II, that at some time he must have thought, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in me will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he may think he's got authority right now, but our God, my God's going to get me to Rome because that's what my God said. I say to you that if God says he's going to get you to Rome, he's going to get you to Rome despite the seasons that stand still for you. The seasons that stand still for you. I almost jumped over this, but I went back and noted that while Paul is in Caesarea, after his first encounter with Felix, the Bible tells us that basically Paul is left for two years in prison. For two years. Felix just kind of passes him to the side. A lot of people believe that Felix was wanting Paul to offer him some type of bribe so he could get out of this situation because Felix was known for his immorality. But for two years before Festus comes upon the scene, two years. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a patient person. Not at all. Wednesday nights when we have the ice cream out, Sometimes it, that line can get long, <laughs> especially in August, September, somewhere around there when everybody's kind of coming back. It can get long. I love Miss Francis. You know, she's the one that gives you the ice cream. She can look over at me and she can say, <laughs> and just like that, I got ice cream. I don't have to stand in line. Hey, it's a perk of being a pastor, all right? <laughs> I don't like waiting. 
You don't like waiting. There are days in your life where you say, you know what, I know this is what God wants for me, but then you got to wait for it. It may be in your job, your vocation, you can say, I believe God wants me to do this. But then you got to wait. There are times in your life where you can say, I believe God has called me to, to be a parent. But then you've got to wait. Some of you say, I believe that God has called me to get married and there's a maid out there for me. And yet, then you've got to wait. And it can be tough waiting for God to fulfill his plan for your life. But I want you to hear this. You may be sitting there and you may be waiting. You need to be reminded today that God will fulfill his plan for you. If he said he's going to do this, he's going to do it. If he said he's going to take you to Rome, he's taking you to Rome. No matter what type of season may seem stand still in your life. He wants to work in you. For two years. For two years. Again, I think somehow along the way, as it seemed like time was not moving, Paul had to start reciting in his heart and his mind, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in me will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Because God's timing is greater than our timing. Some of you may be in that season of waiting. But I say God is going to use this season and God is going to fulfill his purpose in your life despite the shipwrecks that stand to maroon you. Despite the shipwrecks that will come. Again, if you read over into uh, the latter part of this book, if you look to chapter 27 in particular, you will see where... Paul is eventually sent to Rome to stand before the authorities of Rome itself. And what a trip. I, I got my atlas out again, and I, I just looked at it. The way he would leave Caesarea, and you would see the, all the miles that he would cover in the Mediterranean and the different places that they would stop. And I couldn't imagine what it must have been like. You know, I was over in the Mediterranean back in March. We were on a cruise ship. It was a smaller cruise ship. That first day out, some of you who are here, that first day out, the waves were high. The boat was bouncing. It was moving back and forth. And it seemed like my whole world was turned upside down. Some of you who are with me, amen? I mean, I couldn't. I can't imagine. Because, I mean, I was on, now it was a smaller cruise ship, but, you know, it was a cruise ship, and it had the amenities, and, and I think it had ice cream, didn't it, Dale? Didn't it? Yeah, up top. Remember that? That orange stuff was good. You remember? Sorry. Went, went back just for a moment. But the ships of the New Testament day, barges, basically, for lack of better terminology, it's like a barge. They're on this barge. They're out in the Mediterranean. The Bible says that this strong wind comes against it. It's kind of like a nor'easterner. Comes against it. Now, Paul had actually said, we need to stop here in Crete. We don't need to go any farther. We just need, here we should stay. 
but they do not listen to him. And through the journey, through the weather and the issues that they face, they end up shipwrecked. They didn't even know which island they were on to start with. But they came to find out it was a place called Malta. There they were. Now, guys, you got to know that was discouraging. I mean, it would be for the average person. I mean, I'm in a boat. I'm green anyway because of the waves and all the things going on. And all of a sudden, the people won't listen to you. Look, Paul was not there because of his own decisions. Paul was actually there because of the decisions of the Roman soldiers or so. Right? How many times have you ever been shipwrecked and you don't even think it was your fault? You weren't the one who made that decision. It was somebody else. One of your family members, one of your friends, somebody else, somebody you didn't even know. Paul was shipwrecked there at Malta. Marooned. Oh, I do want to point this out in this sermon for a later day, but because of God's plan for Paul, though, God actually saved 275 other people on that ship. <laughs> because when God is fulfilling his plan in our, lives, in our lives, what he does is he also works for the benefit and the good of other people. So 275 others besides Paul, they were marooned there at Malta. If I'd have been there, I'd probably been very discouraged. How am I ever going to get to Rome? God said I was getting to Rome. How am I going to get there? If God says you're going to Rome, you're going to Rome. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in me and in you, he will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. You know, some of you are going to walk in here and you're going to feel like you're shipwrecked right now. You didn't even see that island out there. You didn't even know what it was. It could be a health issue. Maybe for you or for a family member. And you feel like you're alone on the island. It could be in your job situation. Your workplace. And it wasn't even because you made this decision. It's because somebody else decided to do something there. And now you're feeling the consequences of it. You may be on an island, you feel like. And you're thinking to yourself, God, why would the storm come? God, why would the shipwreck come? God, do you really have a plan for my life? And I say to you, I say to you with all the confidence of Scripture, all the confidence of Christ Jesus, that he has a plan for you, that he loves you, and that he will fulfill his purpose until the day of Jesus Christ. Because our God is faithful. His ship is bigger than any shipwreck. He's not going to leave you on an island alone and marooned. He is going to use you. And I love this. I started not to put this in there, but I just felt like I had to because this is one of the most fascinating stories of all the Scripture. 
that God will use you, that God will fulfill his plan, that God will get you to Rome despite the snakes that stand to strike you. What do you mean by that? Well, you've probably read it. But when Paul gets to Malta, there on that island, I mean, they're cold. They had been swimming. They'd, you can only imagine. The natives, they welcome them, thankfully. They build a fire. Paul go get, goes and gets more sticks to bring, build the fire up. And as they're around the fire, what happens? A viper, a snake, bites Paul. The snake was drawn by the warmth, the Scripture says, and it bites Paul. All the natives, they look around and say, that's what you get. This guy must have been some murderer, must have been some criminal. And he thought he had escaped the clutches of God by swimming and surviving that shipwreck. But guess what? God will get you. You can't run from him. Kind of sounds a little, about, a little bit like my mama. God's going to get you. And the natives said, ah, look, he's going to die. But the scripture says the snake is shaken off into the fire itself. And as all the natives are standing around waiting for Paul to give up life, they note that nothing happens. As a matter of fact, Paul's fine. And in the moment, they change their mind. That Paul is not a murderer, but Paul must be a God. Because only a God could survive this. Well, I'm sure Paul set them straight. I'm sure he reminded them that he wasn't the God, that he was a weak person. But he had a God that had, <laughs> that had the greater cure. That was able to bring healing even in the midst of a snake bite. Because his God was greater, because his God had a plan, right? Hey, why would you point that out, Reggie? I would say this. When you think about snakes and nature, I mean, I inferred this with a storm. There are often times that natural things come into our lives, and they seem like they're going to destroy us. Folks, don't forget that it wasn't long ago that a tornadic wind blew through this community and tried to literally rip us apart. It did. Right in our very heart, all the way through our city. And there are so many things that could have occurred and could have happened. I say to you, I say to you, that those of us who went through that, God had a plan for us and still has a plan for us. And if God has a plan for us, he will fulfill it no matter what tornado comes in our life, no matter what snake bites us, no matter what the natural phenomenon, God will fulfill his purpose. Because we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a word of encouragement? Do you see how he 
God just set him up because he knew what he had faced and what he was going to face. And that's the reason the Lord stood by him that night and said, be of good cheer. You have been a witness for me in Jerusalem, and you will be a witness for me in Rome. In chapter eight, uh, 28, verse 16, it says, now when we came to Rome. <laughs> Those are very satisfying words when you read them because it reminds us of what I've been saying this whole time. If he says you're going to Rome, you're going to Rome. When they had come to Rome, God fulfilled that plan and that purpose. I want you to hear today that you and I can be confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work. In that Philippians 1-6 passage where it says, the one who began a good work, it's actually in the tense that says, the one who distinctly, decisively began a good work in you. In other words, it happened definitely, and you know it did. The work of salvation, when he began it, you didn't have to question it. You don't have to think, this happened. And that work that he began, he will continue to work in your life until the day of Jesus Christ. And not only in yours, but in the churches. Because in that Philippians 1, 6 passage, it's not just being confident of this very thing that he who hath begun a good work in you, singular, it's actually plural, which means you all. I'd like to go back and translate some of Scripture sometime and make sure they put some y'alls in there. The work he began in y'all, he's going to perform. So in other words, in, in the church there at Philippi, for us at Temple, 90 plus years, guess what? God started a work here. But I'm convinced that he is going to fulfill it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to keep using us and working because he has a plan. He's going to keep working in your life collectively and personally. Paul had based this statement in Philippians 1.6 upon what I think is a robust theological foundation. But he also based it upon a real experiential knowledge of God's power and strength in his own life. Because I said to you in Philippians, what is he doing? He's there under house arrest in Rome. He's been through all these things that Acts records for us. And he says, God is going to complete his work. You know, I think about this too. Rome was called the eternal city. First century B.C. or so, a poet wrote and talked about the eternal nature of Rome. They believed it was the eternal city because they were convinced that nothing could ever touch it, nothing could ever destroy it. They were convinced of that. But then you look into later history, 4th century, 5th century, and beyond. You have all these barbarians who come into Rome, the eternal city supposedly, and they wreak havoc. And it's never like it was again. Paul was going to the eternal city. Or so that's what they would say. Do you realize you and I are, we're marching along to the eternal city? 
when I say to you that we're going to Rome, I'm talking about when God says he's going to take us to the eternal city, which the true eternal city is heaven itself. And it's not like Rome. It will never be sacked by barbarians or enemies. It will never be destroyed. This is a place of eternity. And you and I are headed there. But you can be confident of this very thing. That he who hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So in other words, we're all, all of us who are believers, we're headed to the eternal city, but God's going to continue to fulfill his purpose for us here on this earth while we're still here. He's going to fulfill the plan and the testimony. And one day, according to his promise, we're going to enter into heaven itself. Because our God is great enough and big enough because our God will fulfill his plan and his purpose. My friends, you don't ever forget that. And you draw strength and encouragement and affirmation from him. Just as if he would stand beside you this morning and say, be of good cheer. How I've used you before, I'm going to use you again. I'm going to fulfill my purpose and my plan in your life. May you take encouragement from his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word and how you speak it to us. And God, I come this morning and I pray for those of us in this place who may have walked in here discouraged, those of us who are believers, Lord, who have faced shipwrecks, snakes, schemers, we face different type of authority sovereigns out there. Father, we face seasons where it just seems like nothing's happening and we're just waiting. God, in the midst of this, I pray that you would encourage us and bless us. Remind us of the plan. Now, God, we know it begins with a work. And for some in this place today, they're in the gathering. They need to follow you and accept you and begin, let you begin that work in their lives. And I pray that they'd come and they'd experience salvation. God, there's some who just need to come and be reminded that you are working for their salvation and their testimony. God, I pray today would be a day when we call out to you and we would see how you are working in our lives to fulfill your plan. Speak to us now and during this invitation, give us the freedom to respond as you call us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand today?